You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to have you join us. My name is Nick. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, the video you just saw is a recap of last Saturday, our big serve. And I just want to say a big thank you to everyone that came out to serve and bless our community. And we got to do projects all over the Norwin area. And uh, what a blessing it was from animal shelters to uh, personal care homes to uh, down in the borough, different parks. So thank you so much for uh, being such a generous church, not just with your money, but with your time. This is what we're here to do. We're here to make our community better and just so grateful to have a church that does that. Uh, Also wanted to share something really exciting. We had baptisms this morning, which is really cool. Maybe this is your first time, you might not realize this, but uh, today is also our first day with our new bathrooms. And uh, you might be like, what's the big deal? Well, the last couple weeks, we've had a bathroom trailer. It was a nice trailer, but it was still a trailer. And today, our bathrooms are done. We have a couple little things. You'll notice there's no mirror. So when you go in right now, those will be in this week. Uh, just imagine the best version of yourself. That's what you look like. <laughs> All right? And... Um, uh, so we want to say thank you for that. This morning we had a little uh, ribbon cutting. want to celebrate that. One of the big things, there's the Liotta family and Bethany doing our ribbon cutting, our official opening of the bathrooms. And uh, Bethany has spina bifida. And one of the big things that is really important with these bathrooms is they are now handicap accessible. And that was something that was very important to us. And we're really grateful. <clears throat> And uh, the Liotta's have been part of the conversation for a number of years now, trying to get those bathrooms handicap accessible. And we're just thankful, grateful we get to do that. So uh, thank you so much for being a generous church that we get to continue to make things better and improve things and uh, continue to try to uh, make our facilities as accessible as possible for everyone. Today, uh, we're kicking off a brand new series. And uh, this is kind of a different series. If you're new to church or this is like something you don't do real often, uh, this is kind of a conversation we're gonna be having over the next three weeks. And we've entitled it Confessions of a Cynical Christian. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, are you cynical? Here's the tell. If they roll their eyes, they probably are. <laughs> um, so I've grown up in church my whole life and, and I understand there are things that happen and we can get very cynical toward uh, what God is doing and wonder like, is it actually real? And uh, over these next few weeks, we're gonna be walking through kind of some of those questions uh, that we face. Now, in 1992, there was a movie released uh, featuring Steve Martin. It was entitled Leap of Faith. Uh, this movie was a satire of Christianity and has become all but assumed as truth today by our culture. Maybe you've seen the movie. Uh, I'm not gonna give you a review of the movie, but it's a movie. Um, the, the movie. The movie follows a faith healer and a preacher named Jonas uh, Nightingale, not the Jonas Brothers, but this is before the Jonas Brothers. This is Jonas Nightingale. The big draw for, for Jonas's services was that he could pick someone from random out of the crowd and, and he would share the most amazing things about that person. Uh, we might refer to that in the church as prophecy. Uh, then he would follow that amazing feat, of course, by receiving an offering, which was the most important part of his services or his show. The entire process was really a series of trickery and manipulation to get info about the people without them realizing it, and then appear to quote unquote be hearing from God. Rather than being an act of divine providence or power, it was actually the masterful work of a con man. And, and while this is a fictional story and Jonas Nightingale was not a real person, the depiction provided has been seen as yet another proof that what Christians talk about, what pastors preach about, what we read about in the Bible is really all fake. It's just a show. It's not real. It's nothing more than a, an act of smoke and mirrors and at best it's there to make you feel better or at worst to get something from you just like Jonas Nightingale did in Leap of Faith. There are unfortunately people in our world that use tactics to to fool unsuspecting folks uh, looking for faith and and they use it for their own advantage. And the big question that when you see things like this or you hear things like this, the big question we have to ask is, well if that's fake, then is all of it fake? Is it all fake? Like, is this all just a show? Or are we just putting on uh, something to make ourselves feel better? And are stories like these, and the, what we see depicted in this movie, are these, this is actually what goes on throughout the church or in Christianity? Is this like the norm? 
Over the next three weeks, what I want to do is I want to share that confession of my own cynicism. And, and maybe it's similar to cynicism you've experienced yourself. I've been in the church now for over 41 years. Uh, I was in the church like 15, 20 years before I was even born. It was um, just an act of God's miracles. Um, I'm just joking. Uh, I'm a little older than 41. Um, but I've seen it all, over 41 years in the church, both the good and the bad. I've, I've seen it. I've watched people try to manipulate. I've seen the ugly side of what church can produce when it's unchecked. I've consequently experienced the honest questions that arise through all of that. My goal over these next few weeks isn't to debate or argue with anyone, but to be transparent about the real cynicism that is present in our society. And, and really, uh, the, the questions and the, and the perspective that many have toward the American church and Christianity in general. If, if you have a friend that, that rails against this idea of church, maybe is really cynical toward this idea of Christianity, maybe it's a coworker or a friend, a neighbor, I'd encourage you, invite them to come to church. Not, not so they, they can get indoctrinated, so they can be part of the conversation. Because I think this is a really important conversation. Uh, I'd, I'd ask that over the next few weeks, while you might come to your own conclusions, I'd ask that you just be willing to listen. Be willing to process. Be open to the conversations we're having. Uh, next week, we're gonna be talking about the, uh, the, the kind of topic of haters just hate and how um, we read in the Bible that we're supposed to love our neighbor. And maybe you've had this thought or processed this before. Why should I love someone that I know is gonna hate me anyway? <laughs> Like, why go through all the energy and effort to love someone that's just gonna hate? So how do we process the idea that hey, people are just gonna hate me anyway, so why even try? And then the last week, we're gonna close out talking about worship. And maybe you've never thought of it this way, but worship, if from an outside perspective, can be, sound pretty selfish on God's part. Like, we're gonna be talking about how God is selfish. Is God really that selfish that he's just absorbed in himself that we just have to worship him? What does that even mean? That's gonna be the last week. Today, though, we wanna talk about this idea of things being fake. And one of the unique things we're gonna be doing during our conversations this month is providing the opportunity for you to text in questions throughout the message. Um, this is a chance kind of for a two-way conversation. At the end of each message, I'm gonna take time to answer some of the questions that come in that pertain to that week's conversation or, or topic. So if you're like, Nick, your shoe's untied, I appreciate that. Um, that's not really a question, but uh, we're not gonna answer that. But we wanna answer questions that pertain to that. You can text in questions by texting the number that's at the bottom of the screen, which is 724-542-2100. So 724-542-2100. You'll see at the bottom of the screen here uh, throughout uh, this morning. So if you want, you can text in questions to that, and at the end, we're gonna try to tackle some of those questions that we can. Now today, we wanna explore what we see portrayed in movies like Leap of Faith, that all this stuff that we talk about, that we spend so much time focusing on, that it's all fake. It's just made up to make us feel better about ourselves or, or maybe just to get money from us. And maybe that's all church is about. It's just about money. In other words, the Bible is just another religious book put together to make sense of the world, but none of what you read in the Bible is actually true. And this stuff about God healing, about God doing miracles, and, and definitely about uh, Jesus dying and rising again, like that can't possibly be true. It's all made up. I know in church it might not be popular to admit that we sometimes have questions or doubts, but I think it's so very important for us to not settle for our questions, but to dig through them and work through them. We don't settle in the questions, but if we truly genuinely have doubts and questions, we should explore those. We should dig into them, because that's the only way we we're gonna find truth. That's the only way we're gonna find answers. So, so let's dive into this sometimes cynical view of the church, of Christianity, that it's all fake. In the first century, as the years progressed further and further from Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, people understandably began to have some questions about what took place. I mean, you think about what we read in the Gospels that Jesus did, the miracles he performed, the miracle of him just rising again. It can seem pretty uh, unrealistic. In fact, the, uh, the, the president of the college I went to, Central Bible College, his name was Dr. H. Maurice Lednicki. He used to say this all the time, that the longer you go without an experience with God, the easier it is to deny his existence. Maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a long time. 
And, and, and it's easier to deny the existence of something you haven't experienced in a long time, right? You've, we've all had those moments where something happens and, and the longer you get from that moment, the more you start to second guess yourself and question, did I see that right? Did that, is that the right way? You know that one time you saw a UFO in your backyard and, and you know, all your relatives were like, you didn't really see that and now it's like 30 years later and you're like, maybe I didn't see that. You know, those types of things. I'm joking about that. But um, if you did see a UFO, make sure you tell someone, okay? Um, that's what they say. If you see something, say something, <laughs> right? Um, so this is the idea. So as, as, as people got further from like the moment that Jesus walked the earth, that he, res, he was resurrected, more questions started to arise. So in the first century, while, while the apostles who had experienced firsthand all that Jesus had taught, all that he did and the miracles he performed, while they were still alive, and like they, they could testify like this actually happened, others were, were there, and, and they're hearing about all the, that Jesus had done, his resurrection, and they didn't experience those things themselves firsthand, and, and understandably, they started asking some questions. This brought about understandable questions, because is it even possible that some of these things we read about in the gospel actually happened? Because they go against uh, logic sometimes. Like the sick or the lame being healed, or the, the dead being raised. This doesn't make sense. So it's understandable that people might wonder if it was just made up. Like, is this really true? And, and these kinds of questions would contribute to something the Apostle John would write in the opening lines of his epistle. Now, if you haven't been with us, like an epistle is a letter written by an apostle, which was one of the early church leaders. So there are these epistles in the second part of the Bible known as the New Testament. Uh, these epistles are written by apostle, the apostle John or Paul or Peter. And, and in, in John's first epistle, the book of 1 John, that we know is 1 John, at verse one, the opening of his, this letter, this book that we now have, he wrote this. He said, that which was from the beginning Listen to this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Do you see those three things? He said, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that we, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. What's John trying to communicate here? What's John saying? He's saying, he's explaining that what he is sharing about this guy named Jesus isn't some fabrication, this, this guy who is, man, who is God in the flesh, it wasn't simply words, it was something that he personally had experienced with his own senses. He, he heard it, he saw it, he touched it. Like he had physically, personally experienced it. And here's the challenge in a world of counterfeits. How do we identify what's the real thing? Like what's the real part? What's the, the real thing? And, and even beyond that, is the real thing even a thing at all? Like, we can debate which God is the right God, but maybe you're wondering, like, is God even a thing at all? Is this just something we've, we've made up? Is our idea of God just a fabrication of our own imagination, just to make sense of the uncertainty in our world? Like, it's one thing to be able to differentiate between a real $100 bill and a counterfeit $100 bill, but maybe there aren't $100 bills at all. Like, maybe there doesn't even exist. So, so is God even real? Or are we just trying to compare one fake with another fake? Now, I believe it's really difficult to convince anyone of anything intellectually until they've experienced it personally. So I'm not going to debate whether or not God exists today. All I'd ask is that you'd understand the simple law of nature that I'm sure we could all agree on. Things never move from simplicity to complexity without some intelligent design or intent. Things never move from simplicity to complexity without some intelligent design or intent. And if that is true, I'd ask that you are at least open to the possibility that there was an intelligent designer. That, that there's something bigger than ourselves that has brought all that we know to be true into existence. Like everything in our world and the complexity of our world from, from nature to the human body didn't just magically accidentally happen. And if you can be open to that possibility, my prayer today isn't that you'd believe anything that I say or, or that I could convince you of something, but that maybe, maybe just maybe, you'd experience something for yourself, something that's bigger than yourself, that, that isn't because I'm explaining it, but, but it's something that you have personally 
embraced or experienced. You see, this is the tension in determining what's real and what's fake in our world. Maybe you've had those like phone calls like, you just won a million dollars. And you're like, all right, this has to be a scam. Like immediately, right? And the, the tension of trying to determine what's real and fake is we don't want to be tricked. It's horrible to be tricked as an adult, isn't it? Like you don't want to be the person on the, uh, the news talking about this new scam that's being done that you fell for and they're trying to tell everyone else about it. Like, I just signed my car over because the guy was nice and he smiled at me and he seemed, he seemed trustworthy. So I just gave him the deed because he said he was gonna do something good with it. Like, we don't wanna be that person, right? So, so we're always on the defensive. We're always looking for, for, for something that's fake. There are a few things worse as an adult than being tricked or manipulated into doing something that's not true or not accurate. And because of that natural fear, we're very leery of things that maybe appear fake or things that seem to be too good to be true. We don't wanna fall for it. Now, back to the first century. At at this time in the Roman Empire, the world was largely a polytheistic polytheistic world. Now, poly means many and theistic means God. So uh, basically, the world believed in a lot of different gods. It was a polytheistic world. There was room for all kinds of different religious beliefs and teachings. And if you walked through the Roman world, if you lived in the Roman world, you would have experienced a lot of them. But into that world, into this polytheistic world, came this guy named Jesus. And these people known as Christians who were talking about a monotheistic faith, which mono means one, theistic God. So a a faith that is just one God, centered around one God. This is a faith that wasn't broad or general. It wasn't simply moralistic teaching. It was a faith based on a single God that is personal, is redemptive, and desires to have an individual experience with his creation. This was a radically different countercultural concept. People didn't know what to do with this teaching. And while Judaism had been present for many years, which is also monotheistic, Christianity took it to a whole other level because Jesus was was God in the flesh. Like God came and stepped into this world. And, And he came to walk in our shoes. And there is nothing more personal than someone wanting to experience what you experience. There is nothing better in your marriage than if you're willing to empathize with your spouse to experience what they're experiencing. There's nothing better in a relationship in general than than someone who's willing to personally experience what you're experiencing. And this is what God did. He wasn't some statue off in the distance. He wasn't some God that was uh, separated from his creation. He literally stepped into his creation to personally experience it, which is pretty mind-blowing. You see, it's easy, easy to say that you know, what you hear a preacher like me say is fake or what you hear about the Bible is fake, that is, unless you personally experience it. Because there's something about a personal experience that can be life-changing in, in any respect. Once you experience something, there's all of a sudden no debate, there's no proof that convince you otherwise, uh, no matter what anyone says. And, and this is a simple thought that, that I wanna share with you today. Experience with someone, with something, always surpasses knowledge of something. So experience with something always surpasses knowledge of something. When when you have an experience with something, it surpasses just your simple knowledge of it. This is what changed the game for men like the Apostle John who wrote this. When John first heard about Jesus, it wasn't simply that he was told something, it was that he experienced something that convinced him that Jesus truly was the Son of God. This is a staple of Christianity from the beginning. It's a staple, it's not just a matter of intellectual understanding, there's this holistic experience of your mind, your body, all of you. This is what Jesus wrote uh, or said in, in Mark chapter 12, in the Gospel of Mark, verse 30. He said this, that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is Jesus saying? It's this holistic experience. It's personal and it's holistic. It's your mind, but also your experience. Now, let me give you a a real life example uh, from the first century. As as Christianity came into existence, the Jewish religious leaders were ready to do whatever it took to try to eliminate this new movement called Christianity. People who were Christians, 
found themselves being imprisoned and some even killed. And, and the tip of the spear of trying to limit the spread of Christianity was a guy by the name of Saul. Now Saul was a really interesting guy. He was very well educated. Uh, he had been raised in a Jewish home. He had been educated under one of the top Jewish scholars, this man named Gamaliel. So he had like the best of the best education. He came from the best family. He, he followed his father's footsteps and became part of this group known as the Pharisees, which, which was one of two different uh, religious ruling bodies at that time. So he had, every, he had the credentials, he had the title, he had the background, he had the family history. He had it all. And as he excelled in his education and his religious pursuits, Saul would be tasked by the religious leaders of that day with the dirty work of eliminating Christianity's influence on their region. And his task wasn't just to minimize the spread of Christianity, his task was to eliminate it by whatever means necessary. Saul would actually be responsible for the death of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was one of the first deacons of the church. And while Paul was a very scary guy, he wasn't just some brute tough guy, he was intellectually brilliant. He could defend the Jewish law with anyone he faced and he would most of the time win. He was a guy that didn't believe anything the Christians were teaching because he knew they were, it was fake because he could debate it. And, and he knew that these people known as Christians had been tricked by yet another false teacher, this guy named Jesus. And he held his Jewish beliefs so strongly he was willing to go to great lengths to defend them. That is, until he personally experienced something that would forever change his entire life, would change his outlook, it would change, the, it would change the course of history. It's recorded in the New Testament book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Acts chapter nine, verse one, here's uh, what was recorded of this story. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> That's not a good way to start a, a, a story, but he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, against Christians. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters, which these letters were essentially like arrest warrants. Uh, these letters, uh, Paul, Saul was gonna be going outside of their jurisdiction in Damascus. And these letters were proof that said, I have the authority to arrest anyone that's part of the way, is what it was referred to, or who are Christians. So he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who, were, who belonged to the way, which are the Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to be in prison. So as Saul was on his way to capture known Christians in the city of Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem, he has this supernatural yet incredibly personal experience on the road. Very next verse, verse three of Acts nine, here's what it says. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to say to him. Now, here's what's interesting. There are ideas that God is like very impersonal and distant and God is just this force. And, and there's one, one concept of theology that God is like a watchmaker. And, and as a watchmaker, he, he built everything. He set everything in motion in, in, in creation. And then he stepped away and just let the watches do their thing. That God is distant. But listen to how God speaks to Saul. Now, think about this. When you have someone that is actively opposing you, um, what do you want to do usually? You want to demean them. You want to dehumanize them. You want to do whatever you can to make sure they know how, how much uh, you don't like them and uh, what you view of them. That's our human response, right? God, in this moment, this guy named Saul is actively killing, eliminating, imprisoning followers of Jesus, God's people. And listen to how God speaks, Jesus speaks to Saul in this supernatural moment. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, was Saul persecuting Jesus? Like, was he imprisoning Jesus or, or killing Jesus? No, he was not. But, but Jesus is making this personal, like this is personal. He said, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Saul asks. What's this, he said, I, not not, not, I'm just a force. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This remarkable moment takes place as this personal experience happens for Paul. This personal experience would radically transform Saul's outlook on Christians. It would change the course of his entire life. 
and arguably changed the course of, of, of church history. Saul would eventually become known as Paul and would go on to be the greatest force for the gospel in the first century, second only to Jesus himself. He would go on to write 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. He would start churches all over the Roman Empire. He would raise up some of the great leaders in the early church. Paul was a force to be reckoned with for the gospel. What Paul believed to be fake and false would turn out to be true. Not because someone convinced him with their words, debated him into faith, but because of his personal experience on the road to Damascus. It was that personal experience with Jesus that changed everything. Because experience with something always surpasses knowledge of something. When you experience it, it changes everything. And you might think, yeah, but that's in the Bible. Like, of course the Bible's gonna reinforce itself, right? Well, let me, let me tell you a story of something that happened many years later. Years later, there was another guy named Clive. And Clive was born in Belfast to Ireland. If you have any children, I encourage you, think about the name Clive. Consider that one. <laughs> Let's get that on the, like, the top of the, the boy name list, Clive. So Clive was born in Belfast, Ireland. Uh, reading and education were very, very highly valued in his home. Clive's father was a solicitor. His mother graduated from the Royal University of Ireland, which is now Queen's University of Belfast, which was very unique because at that time, women didn't graduate with degrees very often. Needless to say, this was a, a very, very well-educated, incredibly intelligent family. After serving in World War I, Clive would study at Oxford University, and after he graduated, he would eventually become a professor at the University of Cambridge. You get the idea, like, he was a pretty smart man. As a young man, Clive had this love-hate relationship kind of wrestling with God. Uh, he once said he was very angry with God for not existing and equally angry with him for creating a world. He, 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 he couldn't reconcile. Intellectually, he couldn't reconcile what he believed and saw when it came to this idea of God. It was a really difficult thing for him. As a professor at the University of Cambridge, he became good friends with another professor there, a guy named John, that would forever change the course of his life. It was this experience with his friend John that would lead to this remarkable moment that he recorded where he committed himself to Jesus. Here's what he said. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He fought it, but it was an experience, not some intellectual thing. It was this experience that would take arguably one of the most educated men in 20th century England and propel him to be one of the most influential figures in the history of Christianity. And man that we know today as Clive Staples Lewis or C.S. Lewis. The professor that would change the course of his life, the experience he had, his name was John or we know him as J.R.R. Tolkien. It was that experience that changed C.S. Lewis's life. It wasn't someone that convinced him and debated him and, and, and helped him see that everything he thought was wrong. It was the moment he experienced the presence of God, who Jesus was. It wasn't this intellectual thing it was, it was the personal experience he had, that, that, had, that took what he thought was fake and allowed him to see that it was real. And I'm not speaking against intellectual study or, 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 or learning and growing, because we should. But my hope today, as we explore the idea of Christianity, isn't to convince you of anything or talk you into anything. My hope is to simply provide the opportunity to experience something beyond the words and to provide the opportunity to possibly experience something real today. And it, it, we're gonna take a, a moment here and we're gonna walk through the questions that have been texted in. But then I wanna wrap up our time together uh, and, and uh, talk to the, this real God in a very real moment as we wrap up. So we're gonna jump through these questions here that have been texted in. So thank you to those who have been texting. Um, first question is this. Uh, and we're gonna do our best to, to tackle these. How is the secular world supposed to know what's real when church had so many denominations that believe somewhat different things? Some believe in you know, speaking in tongues or healing and prophecy, others 
don't? It's a great, great question. Uh, today, in the early church, there was one church. There weren't denominations. We have hundreds, if not thousands, of denominations today. How can you differentiate between the two? That's a great question. So one of the things that's first is to recognize what's, uh, what's the same. There are a lot of differences. If you can come from our church, you can go to a Presbyterian church or, or a Methodist church or, or a Lutheran church, and, and they're all gonna be different. They're gonna be a different experience. But what's most important, I believe, is to have an experience with what actually unites us. Because there are, there are beliefs and statements of faith that are uh, pretty much across all denominations, Christian denominations, are similar and are the same. And an experience with Jesus is something that is consistent through it all. How do we know the difference? How do we know like this is right and that's wrong? I think it's being willing, first of all, to recognize that the uh, distinctives between all of those different denominations are distinctives. But there are things that are core to salvation and following Jesus. The things that are core is that Jesus was the son of God, God in the flesh, that he died for our sin, for our mistakes, and that he rose again, the resurrection. And if those things, if those things weren't true, then the rest of it doesn't really matter. Because those things are the core, the foundation. You know, whether or not we use a certain liturgy, whether or not I'm wearing a robe or dressed like I am, whether or not we sing certain songs or not, those can be debated. But the core things of the gospel, that is our hope. And if, 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 if your experience that you define Christianity by is based on one of the distinctives or one of the things that are uh, on, the, on the edges, so to speak, uh, I would encourage you to lean in to the core of who Jesus is. Not all the other stuff, that, that the liturgy or the style or the approach. That's, that's what's really important. Hopefully that, uh, uh, that answers that question. Next question here. Rather than, uh, let me get this one. Rather than say the Bible is made up, what about it's simply misinterpreted? Like, like the telephone game stories uh, get misconstrued uh, every time it's passed down and interpreted. How can we be sure the Bible is completely true since it was written by humans? That's an awesome question. Um, you understand there's 66 books in the Bible. It was written over a span of thousands of years. The last book of the Bible would have been written 2,000 years ago. Um, I don't know too many documents that maintain its accuracy over hundreds of years, let alone thousands of years. Um, one of the things you see with scripture uh, that is really unique is uh, the original manuscripts. We don't have original, original, but as far back as we can go, how accurate they are to what we presently have. So one of the great examples of this was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were discovered. They were uh, you know, handwritten scrolls of scripture uh, years and years after uh, translations of the Bible had already come out, uh, most notably the King James Version. Uh, King James Version was translated uh, long before any of us were ever alive. And uh, uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 20th century, uh, they discovered that, that these manuscripts predated anything that they used to translate the King James Version. So you're like, okay, King James Version used manuscripts that they had ac access to at that time, at that period in history. And now we found manuscripts further back. And you would think, well, further back, then it must be like drastically different, right? Um, outside of a few little nuances, it was pretty much accurate. And uh, there's, a, there's a valid question of, is, has it been misinterpreted? Because there's a lot of different versions and translations. And I would encourage you to dig into that. And, and, and if you study and read into it enough, you'll start to see that the manuscripts have miraculously maintained their accuracy throughout generation after generation after generation, which is a, a remarkable thing. And it's not simply humans wrote God's word, but in, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter three, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. That, that we wrote it, our human beings wrote it, but the Holy Spirit has been an active participant in every step of the way of writing it and preserving it. And miraculously, you can read ancient, any ancient uh, uh, literature, uh, whatever it may be, um, you'll see that the accuracy has changed drastically over hundreds if not thousands of years. And scripture has not. Are there some nuance? Yeah, there's a few little nuances, but nothing that's uh, foundational. Um, a few little nuances here and there. Maybe you'll read a translation where it, there's a, a few verses that says, well, in some manuscripts it has these verses and some manuscripts didn't have these verses. But those verses aren't things that our whole faith hinges on. 
Um, I, I think that's a remarkable testament. So the idea of is it misinterpreted, uh, th- that's a valid question. And I would encourage you, if that's kind of the question you're processing, do the research. Do the research. Don't, don't, don't uh, just take my word for it, but do the research. Uh, read about the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and what they discovered as they found and discovered these scrolls buried in a cave for thousands of years. Read what, what they found, what they discovered from those scrolls uh, as it relates to what we have as scripture today. Uh, try to hit through some of these. We've got a lot of questions. Um, next question. How can, we de- how can you defend the validity of the Bible? A lot of people that have doubts about faith, have doubts that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll, think, I think I'll try to uh, hit this question, get the gist of what's being said here. So how can you defend the validity of the Bible? A lot of people uh, that have doubts about the faith have doubts that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, so whether or not it was actually inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is a, a valid question. Um, we... Unfortunately, as much as we'd like, we can't be in the, the hearts or minds of people. We don't know what happened. We, we didn't have, uh, um, you know, the writing of scripture wasn't live streamed. Um, they didn't record it, uh, video or audio. Um, there's a measure of trust and faith in that. Um, so can we know 100%? No. That's faith. Faith is never anything 100%. Um, what, what has spoken to me is uh, the threads throughout scripture. So scripture, 66 books, numerous writers, men and women, over multiple generations. Most of the biblical writers had never met, never met face-to-face, this side of heaven at least. Um, so they didn't have like some big meeting where they said, all right, we're gonna outline this whole book called the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah, you take all the bad stuff. We'll call you the weeping prophet. And, and Job, you're gonna, you're gonna have a tough one, but get ready. And Esther, you're gonna be a hero. And we're gonna write that story. Like, there was no planning meeting, okay? They didn't do that. And when you read from Genesis all the way through Revelation, what's fascinating about the Bible, and I'm not saying this uh, uh, proves anything 100%, because once again, there's faith. But there's this remarkable thread of consistency from Genesis through Revelation. And the first part, the first uh, 39 books that, that we call the Old Testament are pointing toward Jesus. And the last 27 books are pointing back to Jesus. That if you read, they, they didn't do this intentionally. Like, it wasn't like someone was sitting down saying, well, what can we do because Jesus is gonna come. When they didn't know Jesus was gonna come. They didn't know when he was gonna come. Uh, a lot of it was prophecy. A lot of it was telling the story of, of what God was doing. Um, but if you see the continuous thread that they actually build on each other, this is kind of a, a way of interpreting scripture, what we call hermeneutics, which is the study of how you study scripture. So hermeneutics is a big word. Uh, there are two approaches to hermeneutics, uh, two, I guess, broad approaches. One is called exegesis, and one is called eisegesis. And it's not like Jesus with a J, it's with a G. There's no, it's just a coincidence, it sounds like Jesus. But exegesis is where we allow the Bible to interpret itself, meaning we don't read our context in. Like, it's 2023, this is what this means to me, so that must be what it meant for that, uh, that biblical writer. That's not true, because they were living in a different time. Eisegesis is us reading our context in. So I re- I'm reading, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave. Oh, he gave. That must be like me giving up my Taylor Swift tickets to uh, this person that didn't have enough money to go. In this, like, that's the same, same thing. It's not the same, okay? It's not the same. Um, we try to read our 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 21st century context, that's eisegesis. But exegesis is a proper handling of scripture. And the reason that's possible is because how well scripture actually works together. Are, are there some nuances and, and differences? For sure. Uh, a lot of those are explained through cultural understanding. So even look at the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some of the stories that they share that are the same, there's some differences in some of those stories. But uh, a lot of those differences are explained knowing who they're writing to, like Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, Luke was writing to a Greek audience. So uh, their understanding of, of a lot of different concepts was different. Matthew talks about uh, Jesus saying I'm, uh, that the kingdom of heaven is near, where Mark says the kingdom of God is near, or, or, or Luke or John say the kingdom of God is near. Why? Because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. They didn't mention the name God. It was too holy. So he said kingdom of heaven. Um, so there are some different contexts for that. So hopefully, I don't know if that answered the question, but I'm, I'm trying here. Uh, 
We're gonna, last question here. Uh, this is the last question, then we're gonna wrap this up. If we depend on experience, is that lacking faith? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. That's an excellent question. That's such an excellent question. So if we depend solely on our experience, is that showing a lack of faith on our part? Since you know, Jesus said in the Beatitudes there, blessed are those, uh, or Jesus said this himself, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Um, first of all, experience isn't seeing. Um, and, and here's one of the things that I just so love about Jesus. And when you read the story of Jesus, is Jesus leaned into the doubts. He didn't like shun them or kick them to the side. One of the great examples was one of his disciples, Thomas. Thomas didn't believe the resurrection actually happened. He's like, that didn't happen. You guys are fooling me again, which I think there's a story there that they must have fooled him a lot. That's, my, that's just my hunch. Like, Thomas was like, I'm not getting, you're not getting me again. Um, but he's like, I don't believe that. And Jesus had the remarkable, remarkable character to not say, Thomas, just believe it because I said it. I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. Just because I said it, you should believe it. What did Jesus say to Thomas? He said, come, feel the wounds. Go ahead. F feel the wounds. Feel it with your hands. Why was John able to say in 1 John 1, we have seen it, we have heard it, we have touched it? Because Jesus leaned into that. Is experiencing, wanting to experience something real, is that showing a lack of faith? I don't think it is. Here's what I think is a lack of faith. Settling for questions without pursuing answers. That is a lack of faith. Does that mean you're a Christian or not a Christian? No, I'm not trying to say, oh, who's a Christian, who's not a Christian? We're not here to, to, to carry titles and throw those around. We're here to pursue Jesus. At what point do you carry the title? I don't know, but we're not here to debate that. What we're here to say is uh, faith is a willingness to pursue truth. And, and if you can experience God, that's a pursuit of that truth. In the first century, we have story after story after story in the Gospels of people who were sick, who were blind, who had leprosy, who couldn't walk, Lazarus, who was dead. Oh, was, was, was that experience of those moments and people who came to faith, was that a lack of faith? Not at all, because they were willing to lean into the faith and to pursue truth, even if it meant experiencing something. And you know what? God still does miracles today. God still heals. I have watched God heal the blind I've watched people get out of wheelchairs, not some fake show, uh, no one benefited, or no offerings received. I've watched people who are in wheelchairs get up and walk through the power of Jesus. That stuff still happens. And do you know what? When that happens, people are like, this God is who he says he is. There's nothing wrong about wanting to experience God. And you see from Genesis to Revelation, men and women who had a similar uh, uh, angle or approach. Gideon is a great example. Gideon's like, God, if this is really you, if, if you're asking me to, to lead uh, this small army against this big army and I'm supposed to be victorious because that sounds really crazy and not logical, I don't know, I'm not a military genius, but the more people in your army, the better, not the less. And if you know that story, you can read about it later in the book of Judges, but uh, Gideon said, he put this fleece out and he said, well, if, if, the, if the fleece is wet and the ground around it's dry, that must be God. And it happened. And he's like, okay, one more time. How about this time the fleece is dry and the ground is wet? And God did that. Is God afraid of our doubts or questions? Is he afraid of our desire as human beings to experience something? Not at all. Do you know why? Because he made you that way. How hypocritical if God said, uh, you have this desire to experience something, but I'm not gonna let you experience it. We have this longing from the moment we were born for the divine. Like the divine is deep within our soul. Whether you can interpret it that way or not, it's there in every single one of us. It's there for those who are rich and poor, those who are single and have lots of kids, those who are married and unmarried. That longing for the divine is present. God put it there. And what does that longing mean? It means that God wants you to experience him. Not just know about him, because you can read the stories of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. They knew so much about God and yet knew, did not know God. Jesus actually said they were like whitewashed tombs, that they were 
They were beautiful and white and clean on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones on the inside. Why? Because they had all this head knowledge but had no experience of God. Uh, Nicodemus was one of the great examples where he actually experienced Jesus and it would change his life. He had the head knowledge, but then he experienced Jesus. And, And my hope for you today, we're gonna wrap up here. My hope for you today is this. Not that uh, anything I've said, you're like, I'm convinced now. I'm not trying to convince you. I don't have a PhD. I don't have a doctorate. I've studied. I have degrees. Uh, but I'm not here to convince you. Here's what I want to do. We're going to wrap up and we're going to pray. And uh, whether church is something you're used to or not, prayer has a title and we automatically put it in the category of like religious practice. And we think, okay, he's gonna pray, we're gonna get out of here and go get something to eat, and uh, that's cool. I don't wanna pray uh, as some just religious practice. Here's been my prayer this whole week as I've been preparing for today. God, I wanna create the platform, but now it's you. This is God's moment, it's not my moment. And as I pray, I'm gonna talk to a real God. You might not believe that, but I'm, it's a real, he's a real God. And, and his presence is actually here. And my hope, my hope is that maybe today, whether you are dead set on God is not real or not, that's, that's fine. My hope to you, for you today is that you might experience something real, just like the Apostle Paul did on the road to Damascus, just like C.S. Lewis did in his room that evening in 1929. My hope is that you might experience something real, a measure of something real that gives you a taste of the real, gives you a taste of the reality of who God is, that, that wouldn't satisfy, but would at least give you a reason to take a step further. That's all faith is. It's pursuing your questions. Not being satisfied, but pursuing the questions, pursuing truth. And my hope, whatever truth looks like, maybe it's for you, pursuing truth is sitting down with someone here that you know and asking some questions. Maybe that's setting up a, a meeting with me or one of our pastors to ask some questions. Maybe that's going online, be careful where you go online, to a credible resource and, and, and researching. Whatever that looks like, pursue the truth. And my hope today, as we kind of close, my prayer has been that today, whether you're here in person, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're one of the shelters, God is a good God. He's a big God. And as big as God is, he is so incredibly personal that he wants to meet you where you are with all your baggage, with all your walking through, with all the reasons why he shouldn't, with all the reasons why he should walk right past you, with all the reasons why he should shun you and push you aside. He still loves you right where you are with all the junk you have. And he wants, to ex- wants you to experience him, just as he did with Paul. He said, Saul, Saul, called out by name. Why are you persecuting me? There's a personal nature to faith in Jesus. So I'm not gonna pray a prayer and ask you to recite it. We're not gonna have the worship team up here or anything like that. In a simple, still moment, I wanna talk to God and I would just invite you to join me, to experience, or at least be open to experience something that I know is very real. His name is Jesus and he is in this place. Would you bow your heads with me if you feel comfortable Jesus, this is your time, and we are so grateful for all you've done. Lord, even as we celebrated baptisms, Lord, how you have redeemed, transformed young and old. Jesus, I pray that today in this moment, for those that are here, maybe they're watching in their living room at home, or maybe they're in one of the shelters across Pittsburgh, and there are so many questions and reasons why you shouldn't be real. God, I pray that your presence would be so tangible in this place. God, that the, 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 the listening to my words, that whoever is listening and wherever they're listening from, that, that your presence would be so tangible. God, that your presence would be so real. God, that it might not fully satisfy, but it would give us a taste of something good. It would be, give us a taste of something real that would drive us to continue to pursue truth. It would drive us to continue to pursue if you are who you say you are. God, we want to experience you at a depth we've never known before. For those who have maybe been in church for their entire lives, 
God, let us not be satisfied. We want to experience you in a way we never have before, at a depth we never have before. God, for those who maybe are watching online or have come to church for the very first time or the first time in many years, God, let it not be some religious practice that we just go through the motions, mindlessly following the rules. God, we want to experience you in a way that changes the course of our trajectory, that changes the course of our family, that changes the course of history. We want to experience you at that depth. And God, we just create this space this morning for that to happen, whether it be in this place, whether it be in our car on the way home, whether it be before we put our heads on the pillow. I pray, Lord, that you would show yourself real to each and every one of us today. Make yourself known to us in a tangible, unmistakable way. God, that our pursuit of faith can be based on how you meet us and where you meet us, not just what we're told is true. God, even as we leave this place, Holy Spirit, go with us. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I pray you would empower us to do far more than we could do on our own. I pray your Holy Spirit would go before us and God, do supernatural things through our prayers, through our actions, Lord, through our humility, through our sacrificial living. Change the world for your sake, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 